You're listening to the Just Giants Podcast with Grump and the Cranky Fan. Be sure to listen for free on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Podbean. First time today, they're going to let Odell Beckham Jr. look to throw it. He's done it once. He's got a man wide open. It's caught for the touchdown. The second touchdown pass of the year from Beckham. He hits Russell Shepard, and the Giants have the lead. Welcome back to Just Giants with Grump and the Cranky Fan, the best damn podcast for the best damn football team. I'm your host, the Football Grump, and with me, as always, is Mike, the Cranky Fan. Hey, Grump. How you doing? A little uh, later in the week this week, but uh, we wanted to talk about the New York Football Giants season ticket holder town hall that was held, and today's a good night to do it as any. Well, yeah, in order to do that, we kind of had to wait for Tuesday and then... You know, getting home from the city uh, for me on Tuesday was kind of late. And then, you know, yesterday was just sort of a bust. So, you know, whatever. It's summer. You know, we're not really beholden to our usual grind, I think. <laughs> so uh, we go. It's uh, It was at the Habit. I think it's the sixth annual town hall they've done. Uh, they invite season ticket holders to the Beacon Theater. Nice place. You know, I've seen many... Uh, Seen an Allman Brothers show there before. I've seen Oasis there before. Saw Erasure there before. So no judging of me. <laughs> Can't believe you admitted that. Yeah. <laughs> Well-rounded grump. <laughs> and uh, you know all the uh, all the big names are there. You, know, you don't scrimp on that. You know you had you had John Mara. You had um, you had the head coach, the general manager. You know. All the rookies, all the main guys in offense and defense. It was, uh, you know, the only problem is that, uh, you know, you're preaching to the choir. And it is like going to a softball game with everything that's lobbed to you. Well, what I'll say is it's a little bit of um, kind of placating fans. I mean, this is a way for fans to directly interact in, in some way, shape, or form with the general manager, the head coach, some of the rookies, some of the veterans, and, uh, you know, the CEO, you know, the president, the owner. Um, mm-hmm. However, it's a little bit of a, what is it called, like a dog and pony show or whatever? I mean, yeah, this is yeah. just a direct way to get coach speak that you would normally get through a journalist. It's, it's all right. the same, but... Yeah, I mean, this is basically, you know... Your most diehard of fans is showing up to this. You're not the, the the fans that are pissed off about everything are not going to this. This is the ones that you know people going, you know they're wearing their jerseys. I saw somebody wearing a jersey over a jersey. You <laughs> see a lot of kids. It's a good opportunity for you know young kids to see Saquon Barkley and you know get that rah rah spirit about the team. So you know in that sense it's good, but really to get any you know insights or secrets or information you're not going to get anywhere else this is not the place for it no yeah and and quite frankly the only time you're going to get information that you're not going to get anywhere else is if you're friends with one of the people on the inside and you're at a bar you know it's we're always going to get kind of the same information but it was sort of interesting to see the fan interaction with um you know these notables you know it's We've had several years in a row of down seasons, um, and it's funny to see 
where the majority of the fan base, or at least the cross section that we had, um, where they placed the blame. And uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, when I look at Giants Twitter, I see a lot of, you know, I guess discontent with John Mara. And yet when he went up, there were nobody who came up with any questions. And they were waiting for him, too. Nobody had anything to say to John Mara. Yeah, that was the one thing I wasn't sure about. We, we disagreed about this a little bit where I had the sense that nobody was allowed to ask John Mara any questions. And Grump thought that nobody just went up there to ask any questions. Because it seemed very odd that this is your opportunity where people, you know, the one person that people write to, and that was brought up about, you know, the letters that Mara gets from, you know, disgruntled fans and stuff, is the owner. Mm-hmm. And this is your opportunity to directly speak to the owner, and not one person did. So that kind of told me that maybe he wasn't getting any questions, and that was part of the deal. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, I know it said Q&A on the sheet, and then uh, you know he made a comment like, oh, this is the e- easiest interview I've ever had to do, blah, blah, blah. But you know, maybe you're right. Maybe people were turned away at the microphone or something. I wasn't paying all that much attention down you know, there, but we we were kind of talking about John Mara's legacy and, you know, what he inherited versus what he accomplished, right? And it's, it's kind of interesting where um, I, he is responsible in some part for the Tom Coughlin hiring, right? Sure. Absolutely. And then at the same time is responsible for the Ben McAdoo hiring. <laughs> yeah, you can't give him all accolades for one and ignore the other. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the McAdoo Act hiring, we all kind of know was a, a bit of a panic move in hindsight where the Eagles had shown interest in hiring him and we just preemptively hired him on our own so he wouldn't go to Philly. And it just was made all the more worse by, you know, in year two, how the team completely fell apart and, you know, coming off the highs of a playoff run in the first year with a giant fan seems to forget at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that oftentimes, you know, I'm the first one to tell you that maybe some guy doesn't really have the knack for it anymore or, you know, something like that. But I think a little bit of the blame for John Mara is Giants fans just forgetting. They're living in the present a little too much. You know, this this, this guy does not have a track record of losing only. Um, Tom Coughlin was his hire. You know, we were also discussing, though, that Jerry Reese was sort of his hire. Well, let's you know, let's kind of take a step back. I mean, what is our criteria for, criteria for being a good owner versus a bad owner? Well, in my opinion, do you want to know what my 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 biggest criticism of John Mara is the uh, the handling of Josh Brown is probably my biggest criticism of him. Yeah, but that you know, I, I don't want to sound like a callous, cold guy, but. That's relatively small potatoes relative to, you know, being the CEO of a, you know, of a, an owner of a, of a sports team. I mean, he handled that very poorly, but, you know, the, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of running the Giants, that was an incident, a bad incident, but it kind of went away and had no really long-term effects. Like I, I agree it, with you. I, you know, I think maybe it's it's a more important thing, but it's a one thing in the many things that are involved in being an owner of a team. I, and I understand that, but 
it's, uh, you know, I like to think of this organization as one not like the Cowboys who have half their roster arrested, you know. I, I like to think of our organization like that. And it was a dark stain. And the way it was handled from, from the get-go before the public even knew about it was a, pretty close to disgraceful. Um, but it, it was really – it was a bad look especially because it, it was a punter. I mean we're not talking about if this was Saquon Barkley or right. your quarterback or or even Lawrence Taylor. I mean this is just a guy that really is in the grand scheme of things an expendable piece on your roster no matter how good – the greatest punter in the universe is still – a punter. Well, I mean, he was a kicker, but sure. You, you know what I mean. I, I do. But, I, I mean, this is all sort of my point. If that's my biggest criticism of the owner was that situation, then, you know, that's pretty, you know, nondescript. You know, it, it's not – it's an important thing in the real world sense, but in the sense of running a football team, it's not a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, remember the Giants built – a new stadium, you know, in conjunction with the Jets, with zero public money. Well, we we see what that looked like. What do you mean? It's just ugly. I hate it. Oh, that may be, but still, the point. <laughs> Who gives a shit with a stadium? And it, football stadiums aren't baseball stadiums where you're going for atmosphere. I mean, base football stadiums, especially ones where you're trying to service two teams, are supposed to be efficient. Well, is and, it and that? Sur- it, sure, it is. It's 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 not bad. I I just don't. It's and a huge upgrade over what Giants Stadium was. Right. I mean, I I have my fair share of gripes with MetLife, but nevertheless, but you, point, you make a good point. point. Being, yeah. No point public money. And, yeah. Yeah, and it was done. You know, fairly quickly too. Fairly quickly. I mean, the, the the proposal was made. They did it, and it was done. I mean, think of these other cities that you know, Buffalo has a major problem right now. They they may not keep the bills long term because. There is no plan for public money to build a new stadium to, to replace uh, whatever the hell it's called now, You know, the old rich stadium. And with some of these other cities have major problems with leases that you know, Jacksonville is always going to be teetering on the edge of keeping their team. You know, they're gonna, at some point, they're going to need to have um, you know, upgrades to their stadium, and you know, Duval County is not paying for it. So the major heavy lift things of what this organization does, you credit to ownership. I mean, the Josh Brown notwithstanding, it's a relatively good group of guys this team has had for the longest time. I mean, mm-hmm. every team has guys that are going to get arrested, and you know that's just – that's society. And you know the percentage of people who get arrested in the NFL is greater than the percentage of people in you know the general population of people. But we are – Nowhere near the universe of the Cincinnati Bengals. No, yeah, that's that's or the Baltimore Ravens or the Dallas Cowboys or any of these teams that just, you know, they they bend don't break. Who should be in this league? Well, and and also we're nowhere near the situation that say, um, you know, the New York Jets are in or, uh, I, I I don't know. I guess also the Bengals, but but just situations where it seems like a rudderless ship. You know, Washington. Yeah. Washington's a great example. I think, yeah, I think Washington and I think and that is great examples. Yeah, I think that's that's more important to me. We we don't go through coaching changes every two years. We're not constantly in the in the silt of the bottom of the riverbed. There, uh, you know, 
as far as I understand it, this is still a um, an enticing place to coach. You know, the team has recently not performed well, but it's not. It's also not like. Okay, so I guess your question is, what makes a good owner not Jerry Jones? Is is really it? I mean, Jerry Jones does wonderful wonderful things for the franchise and the brand, but you know. Well, first of all, that the owner should not be the general manager. The general manager. That's that is Jerry Jones' biggest problem. Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent too hands on. Honestly, might be his only problem. Is that sure. other than that, I would love to have a Jerry Jones guy who who does not mind spending you know half a billion dollars on a practice facility. No, I, I understand that, but yeah. but quite frankly, people don't want to deal with a don't want a coach where their every move is being criticized. You know. And by every move, I mean with somebody looking over their shoulder. You can't do your job effectively like that. Yeah, but you know something? It doesn't mean that these guys won't take those jobs too. I mean <laughs> it, it, Washington has had some pretty big names as their head coach. You know, they've they've all kind of failed because of poor management and you know maybe a short fuse. But look at the guys they've had over the last 20 years, really since Joe Gibbs. There are some big-time names. You have the, the Norv Turners of the world and, the, and Gruden was a hot commodity when he came up. So – Oh, Shanahan. Shanahan. I mean, those are, you know, we're talking some decent names. Um, that's why the whole thing with McAdoo was such a an anomaly, how, you know, this franchise values patience. And, you know, kind of like the uh, the Roonies with, with the Steelers, who've had three head coaches since before I was born. And the Cranky fan is no young spring chicken. So, you know. The Giants are kind of like that too. I mean, they've had a couple in the last thirty years of bad hires, and they've cut the cord pretty quickly. But they usually give coaches a long, long rope before they hang themselves with it. Yeah, so I, I would say that general criticism towards John Mara is pretty close to unwarranted. I mean, there's certain individual things that you can call out, but you know, your your day to day things that you have a gripe with. Are not really, in my opinion, his. I don't know. Problem, I guess. I not think really his fault. Not really his I, deal. The biggest gripe I had with him, and I don't even know how much of an involvement he had, but I'm sure he had some involvement, was the one-game benching of Eli, because that's not a decision that you know a green head coach does. You know, in his second year, but still very young. You know. That had to go up all the way to the chain to say, is this something we really want to do as an organization? And I have a feeling that Mara gave some sort of non-deniable okay to that happening. Because I think that was really, you know, as rudderless as this organization has been probably since, you know, the early 70s. That whole, you know, in a, in a bad year where things went south very quickly. That thing of having him bench for Geno Smith for one game and then bringing him back again was really ungiant-like. And I think Mara's fingerprints are partially on that as well. I agree with that. Um, what was kind of surprising to me was after John Mara, Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer came out to a – Gettleman himself came out to a chorus of very loud boos. Um, 
It was a vocal minority of booze, as we said. These two assholes sitting behind us who were, you know, they thought they were Stadler and Waldorf from the the Muppet Show with their smart ass comments. None yeah, of them that, were any that's, funny. That's our gig. None of them are. Yeah, we're <laughs> funny. They're not funny. So, but I would say if people weren't booing, it was a very tepid response to yeah. Gettleman coming up there. And to be fair, mm-hmm. I don't know, to be fair if not. Dave Gellman kind of brings it on himself and uh-huh. not necessarily it's his fault. If you've ever heard the man speak, I know people talk about, well, he sounds arrogant and brash, but it's that goddamn Boston accent. Yeah. I think it just subconsciously turns off a lot of New Yorkers. And for him even to go on, I think he was trying to make a joke, which really backfired. He's like, I still root for the Red Sox. Well, he got caught out, called out specifically for his accent. He said, smart. And somebody yeah. yelled it back to him, so he turned around and said, "Smart." <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, then he just he said that he still roots for the Red Sox. Whatever. I agree with you. I think he he doesn't care. He's not going to apologize for himself. Yeah, I but I mean, he will. I think he takes credit for uh, you know his roster. I think is really the most important thing. And he was asked straight up by uh, a young girl how we were supposed to be sold about the future of the franchise after yeah. we were told that Odell Beckham was the future of our franchise. And it was a this, good question. This was the high point of getting any real – or being real in the night was this question. I mean I couldn't tell if she was a very young or like someone in her 20s or even 30s. But it was a, definitely a woman who came up there and asked that question. Like you talk about building for the future and building with getting supreme talent, and we just traded away our best talent. How are we supposed to believe and buy into building this franchise if you're trading away our best talent? And that really got you know a lot of applause from that question from the, from the fan base. That's what really everybody wanted to hear who we went to it. And I think – obviously I think he was prepared for this question, but he did come up with a response – come up with. His response was very – uh, precise, poignant, and informed. Uh, people yeah. aren't going to like to hear it, but it was concise and covered all the bases. And, and yet, it was open for interpretation the way he said it too. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it, it was it, it was not you, direct. Yeah, for those of you who aren't there, let's tell him what he said. Well, he. He waited patiently for the uh, the applause to stop and then kind of gave a very calm response. Of, like, listen, you know, football is the ultimate team game, which is my fucking quote, by the way. Um, and, you know, he went on about how you have to build a roster. And then he went on to all the Super Bowl teams that he's been a part of and how all of the pieces had to come together for those teams. He needed, you know, you... You needed your hog mollies, big guys on both sides of the ball. You needed, um, you know, a coach, a quarterback, and he he went through all the things and how it it is more than just a one player game. And then, you know, he doubled down and emphasized that they did not sign Odell to a large contract just to trade him, but when the team spiraled out of control, and a team calls them up and offers them three assets. They had to do what was best for the New York Giants and reiterated that that is his job, is to do what's best for the New York Giants. Now, what's open for interpretation is all this talk about team versus one player. You know, are we talking about ego? Are we talking about um, 
you know, is is one person a distraction to the team, or are we talking about you know this team is full of holes and right now we need to allocate a lot of resources into filling those holes now truthfully i think that answer lies somewhere right down the middle of those two things right yeah i mean let's start off with the the comment we've been hearing for the last year or so is we didn't sign him just to trade him if that was the move to sign him just to train him why would you sign him to such a contract it's almost untradeable i mean it's amazing that anybody actually did take that contract eventually off our hands that's not that is not a, a contract that you sign just to trade somebody. So I don't agree. I don't believe for one second that we we, we signed him to that big deal just to eventually get rid of him as soon as we did. Now, when he did say, you know, we were able to get these three assets, you know, with, with a deal that I couldn't turn down, there was grumbling in that room. Right behind and, us. And even I grumble a little bit to think, did we leave something on the table? with the deal that we got. I mean, we, we are talking about, you know, one of the two, maybe three best receivers in the league, probably maybe one of the five best offensive players in the league, a, a, a young guy in the prime of his career who is at cost control. Now it's a very high contract, but that's what his cost is going to be. And when the cap going up in the next, you know, few years, maybe the D, for what his value is on the field, maybe it's almost a bargain, that contract. So, you know, I, I think that's the thing. Time will tell and see how the trade tipped in our favor or not by you know, the production of the guys we got. But I think when he said that, it was like that package was so much to bowl him over that he had to trade Beckham. I'm not 100% buying that. And I agree with you. And uh, again, like you said, time is going to tell. We're not going to know. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of it is is Jabril Peppers. You know, is he playing in the right system? Was he playing the right spot? You know, did he need a, a little bit more time to develop? I mean, that guy could potentially the light could turn on and he could be a, a pro bowler. You know, we don't know. He's a young player. Um, you know, one of those first round picks was used to take Dexter Lawrence. You know, we'll, we'll talk about him in a little bit, and then Kevin Zeitler is a is a huge uh, hole filler. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I agree with you though. It, it felt like we could have at least gotten one more pick, or or so, it felt like we were a piece away from that being a fair trade. And uh, I, I said that right away. But if you are trying to get rid of a distraction, then maybe that is the missing piece. But here's the thing, though, and we talked about this after the uh, the town hall. It's like they wanted to do this deal in silence. They did not want it to be known that Beckham was on the market. Uh, you know, the the media backlash, the fan backlash, losing his potential value, all these different things. So you didn't know about him even being really on the market until it was done. So because they did it in secret. You have to think maybe they couldn't possibly get the best deal they could have if they just would have said, you know, like how the Pelicans are going to trade Anthony Davis right now and they're coming all comers. Like we know they're trading him and that's just the way it is. So, it, you know, could they have possibly gotten more? Yes. Did they weigh the risk of having an all out bidding war for him? Probably. Yeah, I, I think I agree with all that. Um, 
Pat Shermer didn't really have much to say about anything. I mean, he gave very <laughs> generic answers even when he was asked something simple by a, a child. I don't remember what it was, but he gave a real, a real media answer to it, and I thought that was strange. It's really strange because when he had his first couple of press conferences with the Giants, he seemed to be like this, oh, this guy's a breath of fresh air. Like he's not going to just spout out, you know, coach speak and, and, you know, and just canned lines. But he really was like on medication or something. It was really like a big waste of time having him up there. Yeah, I mean, he might have gotten smacked around in the media a little bit too much. Uh, I'm not really sure what the deal is with that, but. Well, one of the questions that was asked of him, which I thought was great, was someone was like, do you guys check yourselves in the offseason about your oh, yeah, clock, yeah. clock management, timeouts, challenges? And, you know, it was something that we, you know, many times on this show and many times together have talked about, you know, poor decision making, bad clock management. And he even brought up the Atlanta game where we specifically were like, that was probably one of your worst games of the year for for you know your clock management. Well, yeah, that that was actually a second question. the The Atlanta question was about analytics, and he used Atlanta um, as an example of analytics doing the right thing. Or, or I, I guess he said there was evidence, mathematical analytical evidence, to support going for two when they did in the Atlanta game. And we just kind of looked at each other side eye, like nah, I don't know that I. I don't know about that one. I mean, a lot of example. people, a lot of people that are old school are going to lump in everything into the "quote unquote" analytics bucket. Yeah, where you know the days. Sorry to say, for all you old timers are listening, the days of coaching with your gut are over. I mean, there's always going to be some sort of, you know, research and data to use to make almost every decision on the football field going forward. And quite honestly, it makes the game better. It makes you know. Decision making better. It leads to less second guessing, especially by the younger fans that are watching that have kind of accepted this new age trend of how all sports are. It's not just football, it's, you know, baseball very specifically, and, you know, even some other sports like basketball. So that's the way the game is going. And to kind of dismiss, you shouldn't use analytics, you know, that's the teams that are going to, you know, they're going to fall behind. Yeah, I, I don't want to lose because some fucking guy told me his gut told him that it was the right decision to make. Uh, I'd rather lose based on a numbers advantage where you just lost than lose on a you know a gut feeling. Um, but I guess that's sort of <laughs> uh, neither here nor there. Um, the rest of the night was sort of unenlightening fluff. Uh, you know, they trotted out all of the draft picks, um, which was just sort of an exercise in, you know, getting to know them. And uh, the only thing that I really thought was there, there were two things that I thought were interesting. You know, one was that Daniel Jones really does look like Eli Manning in the, in his mannerisms and just the way he presents (laughs) himself. And the other thing is that Dexter Lawrence is really funny. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, he, he was the, each of the draft picks were asked if they had been to New York before. Um, and you know, some of them had, some of them hadn't. And, uh, his answer was that he was there once before. And then he kind of looked around at the, uh, what are we upper East side, upper West side? 
Upper, upper West. East, upper West Side. Kind of looked around to Beacon Theater. He's like, I think I was in a different spot, though. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty funny. I find it really strange that, you know, young men in their early 20s have never been to New York. I mean, it's weird, though. But, I mean, when you think about it, we, we were talking about who who was it? It was um, somebody grew up in Kansas and then yeah. went straight to school. And it's like, of course. You know, I mean, he's only like – 20 i mean he's going to school and then working out like basically yeah. full time it's not like there's time for family vacations so you know. yeah yeah but you know that's uh snobby cranky with your uh <laughs> I mean, it's just i don't know if it's snobby we're, we're just kind of spoiled um yeah i couldn't imagine growing up somewhere like kansas where there's just nothing because I've, I've been out to places like that like indiana where you have like a one road town and it, it just blows my – you know, going there is sort of a one-day like charming little thing like, oh, I've seen Hoosiers. But then like it's to imagine that that's your whole world for like your formative years just it, – it truly blows my mind. I mean I used to just when I needed to blow off steam in high school, just take a train to the city, you know? <laughs> I, uh, I've actually been to New Richmond, Indiana, which is the town where they filmed the exteriors for Hickory in Hoosiers. And it's still a town, and it's still exactly what it was in the movie. It's one intersection with a blinking light, probably about 10, 15 buildings around this blinking light, and then a few houses just outside of town, and that's it until the next town about 15 miles away. Yeah. And, you know, some There's little pockets of this country that have not changed in 150 years, and people populate those places, and you know, it's – it's the way it is. It's just really interesting when, you know, you come in contact and you hear these, you know, basic questions that we all take for granted. Like, well, I've never been north of uh, Shreveport or something. It's, it's weird. Yeah, I think it was as Corey Ballantyne said he had never really been north of uh, – or it was either him or uh, DeAndre Baker had never really been north of like Virginia or something like that. I think it was DeAndre Baker because he's, uh, he's from Liberty City, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, um, I thought that was interesting. I mean, the veterans came up after that, and you know, there, I don't think there was a single thing that was really interesting about that. It was just sort of for fun. Yeah, and you know what these these things are like, guys. You know, when they have on on Channel Eleven or an MSG Network, like one of these giant insider shows, and they're like, let's take a minute and talk to Snacks Harrison, and let's find out what really makes him tick. It's one of those type of things where, you know. I, I am not this person, but a lot of people like to get to know the players and like to, you know, they have, make that connection with them on a personal level and stuff to see that they're real people. That's what this is. And again, you're talking to an audience that's besides the two assholes sitting behind us are diehards. I mean, as bad as this team has been in the last decade or so, they're going to come to this event every single year. They're going to have. They're going to try to get any autograph they can. They are big blue. And it's funny when in an event like this that you can say certain buzzwords Mm -hmm. and like Pavlov's dog, they just go crazy. You say giant pride. You say defense. Everybody goes apeshit. You mention like Lawrence Taylor or Mark Bavaro or Bill Parcells or – you know the grit of the Meadowlands and this stuff, and people just lose their mind. They, and then that's, you know, unfortunately not what this team has been for a very, very long time. You know, just 
crashing the quarterback and playing great defense and hard-nosed running. I mean, that hard-nosed running part, that's not what the league is anymore. You're, you're not – even with a guy like Saquon Barkley, you're not going to see that anymore. It's very much like – I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a Family Guy episode where Lois is sort of running for president or class person. I don't know what that <laughs> was. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Brian's giving her advice as they're having a debate and he's like, don't even answer the question. These people are dumb as hell. Just say words. And she goes up and she's just like, 9-11. And then everybody cheers. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it is kind of like that. But So here, here's the most interesting thing I thought was uh, A – there was a lot of Eli support. I mean, people w- would come up for questions, and it was completely irrelevant to their question. But just like you know, lo- love what you're doing, Eli. You know, I still believe you got it. You know, stuff like that. Um, and now you would think that okay, yeah, this is the old white guy season ticket holder. This whole crowd was really diverse. I mean, ages, uh, you know, length of ticket holder status. Uh, genders, it was all over the map. There was not really, I don't think you could use one designated group to encompass a large section of that. Yeah. Know. And these are also, they're the diehard of the diehard, but they're also not the meatheads of the fan base. Because remember, mm-hmm. this was solely for season ticket holders. And we're not talking about season ticket holders that have had the tickets for 40 years, you know, passed from grandparents to, to grandson. Remember, we've had a big purging of the fan base when of the season ticket holder base when they moved into the new stadium and the PSLs came into play. So you're talking about, you know, more than just your, you know, your meathead fan. These are real fans that you know really care a lot about this team. They with their wallet and with their passion for the team too. Yeah, I mean those those were two of the the most eye opening things I thought from the uh, from the veteran section. I mean, yeah. the rest was sort of like fluff questions and you know fun little the, stories. The Eli thing is very interesting, and you know, for all you guys who've been around New York for a long time, I'm going to equate this to Patrick Ewing, where if this town hall was in like November first, and Eli Manning walked out there, I think you'd have a much different reaction you do now you know john lennon once said wounds heal all time and now that the season is kind of in the rearview mirror and people are starting to wax nostalgic about eli you're going to hear a lot more love and a lot more applause and a lot more accolades for him even if his performance on the field hasn't been what it was in previous years some due to his fault some due to others fault you know and going forward too Really thought it was interesting that the love that he got got the biggest ovation. I thought for sure it'd be from Saquon Barkley. I was wrong. Um, it's good to see though. It's good to see that New York legends get the respect they deserve while they're still here, as opposed to like when Ewing left. Where by the time he left, everybody was like, "Get him out of here!" And then all of a sudden, the revisionist history is, "Oh, we always loved the guy." Well, that's simply not true. So it's nice to see the the fan base. And again. This is your diehards. They love everything, but it was still really nice to see. Yeah, I agree. I I, I did not see that coming. Um, I, I was a little bit on the edge of my seat waiting for his name to be announced after uh, the, the way Gettleman was received. Um, yeah. Pat Shermer did kind of open our eyes a little bit to what we were seeing from OTAs. Um, 
and he did say a thing or two that I thought was interesting. Uh, there was a lot of high praise for Dexter Lawrence. And now I could tell you all I think about him based on things I've seen on film, but you know, he, here's a guy who's got him hands-on, but they're not in pads yet, and yet the praise for him was really real. And uh, they talked a lot about, you know, Gettleman was thrashed a little bit for skipping over Josh Allen and, you know, not really addressing with what seems like high priority, the edge rushing situation. Um, a lot of emphasis is put on what Dexter Lawrence can do up in the middle and, and how generating a push in the middle is what makes quarterbacks the most uncomfortable and this and that. And it was both Shermer and Gettleman that were singing his praises. I thought it was interesting how much praise he was getting despite not really being able to display, you know, neither side of the the line of scrimmage can really show a whole lot of what they can do at this point. I thought, so I mean, what we're talking about now is probably his speed, get off, um, leadership ability, uh, intellect, IQ, ability to, uh, to, to learn a very big playbook very quickly. And they were all asked about the playbook and, you know, some of the players, you know, came from smaller schools. I mean, Washburn, uh, you know, some guys like Darius Slayton didn't really have a huge route tree at um, uh, Ole Miss, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Slayton at, at Syracuse, um, Big George from Kentucky. I mean, these guys were like, "I the playbook is ridiculous." Uh, O'Shane Ziminis from Old Dominion said specifically, "I've never, I didn't know playbooks could be this big." Dexter Lawrence, on the other hand, said, "I came from a complex defense. You know, it's a, it's a big playbook, but you know, I get it. It's it's a little bit faster now, where they just kind of in college they kind of walked us through it and whatever. And now it's just like we show it, and then we're gonna rep it, and then tomorrow we're learning something new. But you got to remember what we did today. You know, so that was like a challenge for him. But at the same time, he wasn't overwhelmed. So." You know that's that's some high endorsement, and obviously he should be getting it. He's a top twenty pick, but you know I just thought it was interesting. Based, it, it wasn't just on his physical ability. It can't be. I thought it was interesting that Shermer said is kind of a cautionary thing to all the fans about don't buy what the media is saying about OTAs. Now, you kind of don't want to temper everybody to be like you know just because you hear a report uh, about how great somebody looked on one day take it with a grain of salt. Mm. And, um, you know, all they are, they're, 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 they're glorified walkthroughs more than anything because they're not in pads. They're in their underwear. You know, they're learning the playbook. They're doing walkthroughs of plays and everything. So, you know, when you hear reports of, oh, this guy looked good, this guy looked bad. I mean, I was listening to one of the other giant podcasts out there this week and they kept the praises about how Daniel Jones, like, oh, he's proven a lot of people wrong on arm speed and strength and this and that and boys. It's like, all right, relax. You know, there's no bullets in the gun right now. Let's just calm down. I mean, a lot of the things you're going to hear are, you know, stuff that, you know, the, the coaching staff wants out there, you know, to generate interest in the fan base, cause people to think on other teams. It, it doesn't mean shit. I mean, these are just, you know, the glorified walkthroughs. Yeah. Um, I, I, most of what our OTAs are, are uh, showing us is, you know, nothing. I mean, it, this is really just for them to get acclimated in the pro lifestyle, the, the what practices are going to be like, etc. Um, you know, 
it's nice to know that a guy like Darius Slayton, who struggled a little bit with drops in college, struggled a little bit early on and got more and more consistent as OTAs went on. Yeah, we're looking for improvement, but you know, we're not going to dissect each and every play. I mean, this is this is where they're supposed to screw up. This is where you want them to screw up. Quite honestly, I wouldn't even have the media at these events, any of the OTAs, because you know, you're right. You want you want instruction. You trying to teach them how to play as New York Giants and NFL players. You're trying to, you know, start good habits in things. This is not installing game plans. These are not tryouts. I mean, nobody's competing for a job right now. It's just kind of learning muscle memory. So allowing the media in there, allowing outsiders to something that really should be behind closed doors. You know, I don't think it does anybody any good. If anything, it makes it causes false opinions about things, good or bad, when they shouldn't have any opinion based on what you see here. Because last time I checked, nobody got cut after the OTAs. Yeah, based on performance, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, and so the, these reports you're reading, like uh, Matt Lombardo wrote a, a piece for NJ.com, you know, the, the Giants minicamp winners and losers. But I understand that he, he's given an assignment, and, you know, he's got he's to fill a column, and uh, he's got to do something, and, and this is a perfect piece to write. Read it. Enjoy it. Don't listen to any of it. It's worthless. I mean, at this time, you know, you can kind of say, like, oh, it's real interesting that uh, Julian Love didn't get first-team reps over Grant Haley. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a not clean slate in, in training camp. You know, yeah, what I mean? it's, it's not interesting in the least. You know, if I hear that somebody is, uh, gets hurt, that's interesting news to me. Yeah. But to hear like, oh, the footwork, that's – don't care. These are drills. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot – I saw this consistently among writers that Alex Tenney was the most consistent quarterback. That's great. He's not starting week one. Uh, he's consistent because he, he's a veteran. He knows what he's doing. He's out there doing his job. And quite frankly, he's not going with the ones in a new, you know, a, there's a bunch of new pieces in the starting lineup, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. A- a- Alex Tanney is, sure, he's a good backup, I guess. I mean, we've never seen him in live game action, but um, it's irrelevant. He does, he does all the little things that are needed to be a backup quarterback. He knows the playbook. He doesn't get injured. He's capable. Yep. And let's be honest with our, what our expectations are for the role. It's basically to be that. Know what you need to do if you have to go in with your press for service. But it just illustrates my point that these, these kind of reports tell us everything and nothing all at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I guess as, as we break, you know, as OTAs are over, we are going to continue – uh, next week doing our season previews we, we kind of left off after week 8 and we're going to continue over the next couple weeks going through four games at a time and kind of predicting way too early what we think the season's going to look like um, it's not a pretty picture so far no but at. I mean neither are we so <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> um, but in the interim should anything break news wise you can always follow me on twitter at football underscore grump uh, and I'll be sure to be all over that and replying to it, but I'm not going to entertain 
silliness um, and have a heated debate over who's going to be the starting quarterback week one based on a throw in OTAs. So don't waste <laughs> my time with that because I, you know, I might respond, but I won't. He doesn't have time to waste, folks. He's very important. Hey, I, I do a lot of things, man. Uh, <laughs> um, and this podcast, as always, is going to be on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Podbean, Google Music, you name it. It's there. Go find yeah. it. Yeah. If you can't find us, you have a bigger problem than we do. So yeah. you can find me, as always, on Twitter, at the Cranky Fan, where I have not been very happy lately, as you probably know. My, uh, my almost first place Tampa Bay Rays are really a shit show if you watch them on a nightly basis, and I'm starting to boil over in my frustration as I sit here. First three batters, they're down 3 nothing. So I've been keeping it pretty pretty cool tonight. So, But there will be a tweet storm unleashed very shortly. Um, but, you know, I, I talk about all things, you know, Tampa Bay Rays, Florida Gators, and, of course, New York Giants. And you know, we're coming back from our spring hiatus with the uh, Mark and the Cranky Fan podcast. So be on the lookout for that as we start talking all things Florida Gator football as well. And as always, you can find the podcast itself on Twitter at Just Giants Pod. Um, you know, just in case you check Twitter first thing in the morning and not your SoundCloud or you know iTunes account, which is totally understandable. Hey, it happens. Um, and with that, continue enjoying your summer. We will see you Tuesday morning. Go Giants! Go Giants! Let's go!